Well, if you will, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And uh, if you have missed a few weeks, we have not skipped from Acts 5 to Romans 5. Uh, We are going to look at Romans today uh, as I take just a a break from Acts for this week. uh, Because I want us to to think about something that many of you probably have already thought about. uh, Resolutions for the coming year. This is the, the time of year, the time of the calendar where normally we start to think about what we're going to do differently next year, how we're going to improve next year, what we're going to resolve to do. And so what I want us to do this morning is to take a moment just to consider what God's Word might have to say about those things. And how as we seek to make resolutions, we might consider making some of those resolutions in light of what God's Word tells us. Or to say it a different way, to make biblically informed resolutions. And so... We're going to pause today from our study of Acts. We'll return to that next Lord's Day. So that we can look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then consider what God's Word might have to say in this passage to us about resolutions that we might make or are making for this coming year. So if you are able to, if you don't mind to stand, out of reverence for the Word of God as I read it for us. Just these five verses, Romans chapter 5. Remembering this is the, the holy inspired, authoritative word from God to us today. And this is what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you would, pray with me. Father God, I do pray that you will use this word in our lives today. I pray, Lord, in these moments that this would not be a time when a a preacher shares a message, but this would be a spoken word does a work in our lives, that your Holy Spirit helps us to see and respond. I pray this would be a time, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, that we might repent of it, and that you would remind us of the gospel, that we might cling to it. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Usually this time of year I like to, to, to take this opportunity, as I mentioned already, to, to think about our resolutions in light of God's Word. And as I've shared before, the whole concept of resolutions and resolving is, a, is an ancient one. It goes all the way back to the ancient Romans. They had a, a Roman god named Janus. And Janus was the god of beginnings and the god of transitions. Uh, That god was depicted as having two faces, one looking forward, one looking back. And what they did is they they believed that this god then could could, could bless them if they made commitments to this god. Uh, The month of January in the Roman calendar, the calendar we now use, is named after Janus. And the Romans each year would make resolves. They would make commitments to this God in hopes that this God, among many of the other gods they believed in, would bless them. Now I'm not too sure 
how good they were at keeping their resolutions they made, but I know that in the centuries that have passed since then and now, we're not so good at keeping resolutions we make. I read a study not long ago that tracked resolutions and found that 88% of those who set resolutions fail. Isn't that an encouraging thing to hear at the end of the year? But you know it's true. You drive past the gym next week and what will you see? Full parking lots. Everybody's resolving. They're going to go work out and they're going to sign up for those memberships. But you know, there's a reason they set you up on automatic draft. They know you're not going to be there the next month or the next month or the next month. But they've got your money, so they're okay. Those parking lots will soon be empty. Now you, you think about that. The standards we set for ourselves, goals we set for ourselves, 88% of the people don't even commit or follow through on those commitments they make. Resolutions have changed quite a bit. We might not know about those in ancient times, but we're able to study those from 100 years ago. 100 years ago, when people make resolutions, historically we know that their resolutions had a lot more to do with helping out others and with improving their character. Now resolutions tend to focus more on helping out ourselves and improving our image, or our figure. Things have changed quite a bit. And so between the secular focus on the external and, and how often we fail to follow through on them, many of us as believers probably have just backed away from the whole notion altogether. I think we do need to ask the question as believers, is it even a, a biblical notion to consider resolving? I mean, doesn't the Scripture say uh, your yes be yes and your no be no? So, so should we therefore make these resolutions or commitments to begin with? And I think the Scripture would say we should. Now, the Scripture doesn't necessarily say one time a year we're to make resolutions, but it certainly indicates we are to resolve. We are to make up our minds. We have that picture in the book of Daniel. If you know the story of Daniel and his friends, as they're taken out of their home country, away from the God they worship, into a pagan land, they're put in a place where they're told to practice and do the things that these pagan people do, that they're to eat what the pagans eat. And the Scripture tells us in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel resolved. Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself with the king's choice food. We read of Paul in Acts 19 that he resolved in the Spirit as to where he would go on his missionary journeys. And then we read in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 11 and 12, what Paul prayed for those believers. He prayed that our God would make them worthy of His calling, that they might fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified among them. I think this, this notion, this practice of resolving is very much rooted in Scripture and should drive us as believers to make up our mind determined to walk in faith. Not just once a year, but throughout the year. It's what led men like Jonathan Edwards, the great pastor and theologian of the First Great Awakening, to come up with a list of 70 resolutions. Hey, he started writing this list when he was 19 years old. And those 70 resolutions weren't just something he read on January 1st. It was something that he committed to reading at the beginning of every week. A reminder to him 
of what his resolve needed to be. Things like resolving never to do anything out of revenge. Now that would probably be a very helpful resolution for us, wouldn't it? To remind ourselves often of that. A resolve to when he was in pain, to consider his pain in light of the pain of those who were martyred for the faith. Now that kind of puts your pain in perspective, doesn't it? And if that weren't enough, he would consider his pain in light of the pain of those who would suffer eternally in hell. Well, that would certainly put your pain in a, in a right light. Edwards resolved to study the Scripture so steadily and constantly and frequently that he would grow in his knowledge of God's Word. I think that's a great resolution for us today. And so what I want to encourage you to do is as you consider this practice that's very common to us in our culture today, to, to consider your resolutions more in light of things like Edwards wrote about, more in light of the Scripture than in the light of our culture or the ancient practice of the Romans. And so what I want us to do is just to simply walk through this passage, Romans chapter 5, and some things I believe it indicates or points us towards that we need to be resolved according to. Beginning with the first one that I've put there in your notes. We need to resolve to grow in our understanding of the Gospel. To grow in our understanding of the Gospel. Paul in his letter to the Romans begins the first four chapters by essentially just unpacking the Gospel and helping them understand the Gospel is the only thing with the power to save us. And then in Romans 5, he talks about what it means to be justified by our faith, not by our works, how, to be, how we are saved by God and how we can have hope in Christ. I have a question for you today. How well do you understand the Gospel? I mean, it seems like one of those things that we talk of so often. It seems like something we should all be able to just share with somebody immediately. But if someone were to come up to you after church today and say, you know, I keep hearing this preacher talk about the gospel. Can you explain to me what the gospel is? What would you say? Would you be able to unpack it and say, well, here, here's what the gospel is. I hope that you would, but when we think about it, maybe everybody here couldn't do that. And more importantly, I think what happens is that rather than really understanding the gospel and thinking about the gospel, in church today we tend to think about all these secondary issues. In fact, that, that's kind of what draws us to the church sometimes. We're having struggles in our relationship. So we go to church hoping, well, God, will you fix my relationship? Where, where's a passage in the Bible that helps me understand how, how I can fix this? We're struggling financially, so we come to church. God, can you just help me financially? Can, can you show me a passage in the Scripture that, that helps me to better understand finances? And then there's all these other issues like that. And it's not that they're not important, but they're not foundational. You see, the gospel is what is foundational. And if we don't fix what's foundational, if we don't understand that, then nothing else fits. Sandy and I lived in a home a number of years ago in Bowling Green where there in the bedroom above the bathroom door, I noticed after we moved in this small little crack developing. And it was small enough that I thought, well, I'm not, you know, I won't worry about that. But then over time I noticed that crack get larger and larger and larger. So, being the handyman I am, I went and I got my spackle and I got my putty knife and I spackled it on there and I sanded it and we primed it and painted it. Wish everything in life was that simple. It was fixed. About a year later, 
Look up. Here comes that crack. Except this time it seemed to be getting bigger quicker. So I thought, well, I must not have used the right stuff the first time. So I'll go to the store and get the super spackle and go in there and spackle it and prime it and paint it. And now, now we're done. A few months later, here comes that crack again. See, I didn't have a crack in the wall problem. I had a foundation problem. And until I corrected and addressed the foundation issue, I was always going to have a crack in that wall. In our faith, if we don't deal with the foundational things, we can spackle those cracks in the wall all day long, but never really get to the heart of the issue. And for believers, friends, the heart of the issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we don't rightly understand it, it doesn't matter what verses you read about relationships or what sermons you hear preached about your finances until you rightly understand the foundation of the gospel. None of that will help you. We see here in Romans chapter 5, Paul addresses this foundational issue. He speaks of the gospel just in the first verse. He tells us three different things about the gospel. He starts out and says, since we have been justified by faith, that the gospel is a message of justification. That that is a legal term. What it means is that God declares you and I righteous. Not because of anything that we have done or merit on our part, but simply based on our faith in Jesus Christ. Because we have placed our faith in Christ, God looks at us and He declares us righteous. Because of our faith. But if there's a great misunderstanding in the church today, it's on this. Because so many of us, no matter what we here in church, no matter what sermons are preached, so many of us have rooted deep within us this notion that our justification before a holy God, while yeah, faith plays a part, so many of us have this notion that our works are involved there somewhere. Well, yeah, I know, I know I'm saved by faith, but I still need to try really hard, right? I need to work at it. And you might not say it that way, but how it normally comes out is when things don't go well and you start to complain before God and say, well, God, I did this and this and I did this and this. Why haven't you done this? See, we tend to look at God and think that if we do enough good things, then we deserve somehow His favor towards us. I've had a lot of conversations over the years with people about the gospel and about their faith. And usually when it's someone I don't know that well, if I'm sitting down to have lunch with them or or sitting down to share the gospel with them, I'll normally start out with a couple of questions. I've shared about these before, just ways to find out where a person is spiritually. And usually one of those questions is this. If, if your life were to end today, and you stood before a holy God, and God said to you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say to him? You think about that for a second. What would you say to him? If you stood before God and He said, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And you know, by and large, I would say 90% of the time, whether the person has grown up in church or they've never been in church, it seems the most common answer I receive to that question is one that's based on works. Well, I've tried to be a good person. Well, I might not have been the best person, but I was better than a lot of them. (laughs) 
I tried to treat other people like I thought I should be treated or I wanted to be treated. I've tried to live a good life. And then for whatever reason, the one that always comes in there, well, I've never killed anybody. (laughs) Okay, that's the line right there, you know. Murderers, hell, everybody else, heaven. For some reason, we, we say that. What are we saying? We're trying to say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm certainly not awful. <laughs> the problem with all those answers is they all focus on us and what we have or have not done. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to a question as to whether or not we should enter into God's kingdom or not, the answer to that question is not about what I have done. The answer to that question is about what God has done on my behalf. And what the gospel tells us is that we are justified not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done for us. Because Jesus died in our place. Jesus didn't die for 80% of our sin. See, some of us think that. We, we don't say it that way, but we think about it. We think, well, I'm not a great person, but I'm a pretty good person. And I know I've done a lot of bad stuff, but my good stuff, well, maybe it'll outweigh maybe 20% of my bad stuff, and then Jesus will take care of the rest. But the Gospel says, no, friend. There's none righteous, not even one. If you're here this morning and you've never killed anybody, Good. That's the, I feel more comfortable being in front of you. I hope today doesn't break that trend for you. But that's not the answer that's going to get us into God's eternal kingdom. The gospel is. And the gospel is about what God has done, not what we've done. And then Paul tells us the second great truth in this first verse. Because we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now you think about that notion, that concept of peace. Some of you may have seen an ad that's, I think it was floating around the internet this Christmas season. It, it marked a historical event, the Christmas truce. Happened during World War I in 1914 between German soldiers and British soldiers. And there's different uh, accounts of what took place, but by and large what they agree on is that on Christmas Eve of 1914, in the middle of a battlefield, entrenched on two separate sides, these German troops and these British troops started to sing Christmas carols. And to recognize the Christmas carols that the others were singing. And then over time they started to, to, to stand up in the trenches And then they started to venture out into what they called no man's land, there in the middle of the battlefield, among those who had died days before. And they began to shake hands and exchange Christmas greetings. Some accounts were that they even started to give gifts to one another. One received some chocolates from home, so he shared chocolates with that person who was his enemy. Several accounts said then they started playing a game of soccer together. And and that commercial... And that event is heralded as, look at this moment of peace. But you know what happened after Christmas Day? The guns came back out. And they started shooting one another again. World War I would go on for years. There was never another Christmas Eve or Christmas Day where there was a truce like that. Why? Well, they say the men became so embittered because the people had killed their friends that there was no way they were going to come out and have a truce again. 
And so World War I wasn't over because they shook their hands. In fact, World War I historically didn't really fully end. It just carried over into World War II. And World War II ended, why? Because ultimately, an enemy was destroyed. I share that for this reason. Most of us have this concept of peace. That is, peace is when two enemies come together and shake hands and agree to disagree and to get along. That's not what peace is. What you see in the Scripture historically is peace between two kingdoms doesn't come when one king goes to the battlefield and another king goes to the battlefield and they shake hands and say, well, let's just be at peace. You know how peace comes in the Scripture? Peace comes when one king goes to battle with another king and he so utterly destroys and defeats him that that king has nothing left and then one king will rule and now he'll have peace because the enemy has been defeated. You and I don't have peace with God because God, in a moment of benevolence, extended His hand to us and said, well, I think... We'll just let bygones be bygones and we'll just get along now. You and I have peace with God because God's only Son, Jesus, went to the cross. And God unleashed His fury and His wrath on Him so that the great enemy of sin and death might be fully and utterly defeated. And once that enemy was defeated, then the Scripture says we can have peace with God. Peace doesn't come with a handshake from the Lord. Peace comes from the cross of Jesus. And that's why we see in the Scripture, Adam and Eve, they have peace in the garden because there's no enemy of sin and death. As soon as that enemy comes in, there is no peace with God. But everything points towards that moment when peace with God is possible and it comes through Jesus And that's the great promise we have in the Gospel. We are justified by faith so that we can have peace with God that comes through Jesus Christ. Not through us, not through our works, not through our efforts, not through our traditions, not through our practices, not through how many prayers we say, not through how many times we go to the church, not through what church our name is written on the membership roll of. Our relationship with God is fully and totally based on the work of Jesus Christ. The Scripture says every one of us in this room, no matter how highly you might think of yourself, or I might think of myself today, we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin, rightly, is death. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand that? Can you ever understand that enough? I would encourage you in this coming year, in the midst of whatever other things you're resolving to do, to resolve to better understand that. To spend time reading scriptures about it. One that you can write down in your notes there, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is a wonderful passage that speaks of the grace of God towards us and how we are saved, not because of what we've done, but what Christ has done on our behalf. I would encourage you to read that passage daily, to be reminded daily that it's not because of what you've done, but it's because of what Jesus has done that we might be saved. Resolve number two, 
resolve to grow in your understanding then of God's grace. We speak of grace, but again, do you understand it? Most of us have heard a definition of grace somewhere along the lines of unmerited favor. That's a great definition. But let me share with you one that's a little bit longer and more thorough. This is from Spiros Zophites in his word study on the New Testament. He says, grace is this. A favor done without expectation of return. The absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to men. Finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. God gives to us not because of what we've done or deserve, but because He's benevolent and He's gracious. Do you understand that? See, for many of us, we've kind of confused and interchanged the words mercy and grace. They're two very different things. And mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We rightly deserve hell for our sin. We deserve the wrath of God. But God in His mercy towards us, through our faith in Jesus, He holds that back. He is merciful and He unleashes that on the cross. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace is getting something that we can never pay for. That we haven't earned and will never earn. It's receiving the loving kindness, the benevolence of God. You might think of it this way, for you who are parents and grandparents, you you think about your children when it comes to their behavior not quite being what it should. (laughs) And you give them some sort of consequence. And perhaps you're like some who, perhaps me, (laughs) you threaten that consequence for a long time before you give it. Okay, if you don't stop doing this, then I'm going to do this. Okay, really now, if you don't stop... Now, how many times have I told you, and we speak of it over and over again, and kids, you don't need to raise your hands, especially mine on this one, but do mom and dad always give those consequences they speak of? Nope. <laughs> Sometimes we forget. Sometimes there's so many we forget. You, know, you start in the ride towards Bardstown, and you're up to like 40 consequences by the time you get to the exit. You can't remember the first 38. But there are times when we're just simply merciful towards our children. They deserve a consequence and we do not give it because we're merciful. And then there's those times when we show them grace. When we give to them not because of what they've earned or deserve, but because we love them. You probably had some grace around a Christmas tree this week. (laughs) Now, I don't want to mess up too many traditions here, but I'm going to let a little cat out of the bag. Kids, you didn't get those gifts because you were so good this year. You got them because somebody loves you. What we give, not because, well, let me think. Got four kids. Which one was really good? Oh, this one really, they were really good. This one was rotten, but this one was pretty good. So I'm going to get this one, you know, just, you know, maybe a little dollar store thing because they weren't very good. But I'm going all out for this one because they were so great. That's not why we give. 
We, we give because we love. I'm just guessing most of you this week, when the kids were home from school, maybe you were off work, you were with them all day long, you probably didn't end those days going, man, they're so good. I mean, they were great. I've got to go buy more stuff. You probably ended that day going, when does school start back up? When can we go over the hills and through the woods to grandma's house and just open the door, let them out and go home? We don't give because someone's so good. We, we give because we, we love and we care and we're showing grace. And it's not just giving gifts, but just the love we extend so often, it's out of grace. If you start to just get a, get a notion of that understanding, you start to get just a glimpse of the grace God has for us. God doesn't look down on us and say, well, that, that Richard, he's been pretty good this year. <laughs> Scripture actually says exactly what God says when He looks down on us. There is none righteous, not even one. I've looked the whole earth over, God says, and I haven't found one that stands out. But in His love, in His grace, in His goodness, He gives us something we can't even comprehend when He gives us His Son in the Gospel. Resolve to better understand that in the coming year. Third, Resolve to suffer well and place your hope in Christ. Now notice Paul's reasoning here. He starts out verse 1 saying, okay, listen, we, we've been justified by faith and so now we have this wonderful peace with God. That's great. We love to hear that. We, we are at peace with God. And then in verse 2, he builds on that and he says, okay, now that we've got peace with Him, we, we have faith and through that faith we, we can have access to His grace and we can stand in it. And we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen. Those are great verses. And then you read verse 3. More than that, okay, it gets better. We rejoice. I like to rejoice in our sufferings. And if you're like me, you get to verse 3 and you go, I really like where we were going up till then. Peace with God, faith, grace, glory, but suffering. See, friends, there are many in our world who look from the outside and they look in at the church and they hear us speak of God's goodness and His grace and His love. And then they watch some of us suffer. And they say, well, that doesn't make any sense. If this God loves you so much, why would He ever let anything bad happen to you? Perhaps some of you today, you, you struggle with that. If God truly loves, then why will He let you suffer? There's a way out of that, by the way. It's a false gospel, but it's a way out. It's those who say, well, no, if you have enough faith, you'll never suffer. And if you're suffering, you don't have enough faith. It's a lie from the devil, but it packs churches. But if you read the very words of God that we are reading this morning, what you find is that God truly loves us. He is truly gracious towards us. And He truly uses suffering in our lives. And Paul says here that when we suffer, we might rejoice in our sufferings. Now I think there's a great misunderstanding when it comes to that phrase, rejoice in our suffering. Because for a lot of us, we read that and we think, okay, let me think, okay, so I'm suffering, 
but, but I'm not supposed to show it. When I'm, when I'm suffering, I'm supposed to rejoice. So I guess when I'm suffering, I just need to... How are you today? And we think we've just got to kind of put on this mask as if we can fool the world around us. When I was in college at NC State, we, we had a, a lot of bricks on our campus. And I mean, there were bricks everywhere and there were trees. And so the leaves would fall on the bricks and it would rain. And it just became this slippery slope to get from point A to point B. And I remember one day I was walking to class and I wasn't paying attention. I was, I was looking at some notes or something for a test. I don't know what I was doing. But as I went around the corner, I mean, I just slipped the slip of all slips. I mean, if this thing had been caught on camera, it would get billions of hits on YouTube. Because not only did I slip, as I was falling, somehow my face managed to grab onto the bumper of a truck. And it just laid me out. You know what my first thought was? Hope nobody saw that. And then I remember this girl peeked her head over mine and says, are, are you okay? And I just jumped up. Oh, yeah, no, I'm fine. I barely felt it. I don't know what you think you saw, but I, I'm good. And I'll never forget, this girl was looking at me with this terrified, she's like, are you, are you really, do you need to go to the hospital? And I'm like, okay, that's a little much. You know, I'm, I'm fine, I'm good. No, I'm just going to class, I'm good, I'm fine. Are you sure, do you need me to call somebody? And then I went to the bathroom and I found out why she was so stressed. Half of my face was covered in blood. I mean, this is one of those, you know, it didn't, wasn't a really big cut, but it just whoosh, everywhere. And I'm standing there going. That's how most of us think we're supposed to deal with suffering in the church today. We are laid out, flat out, blood on our face and we walk through these doors and what do we do how are you i'm great i'm good oh i'm good couldn't be better best christmas ever best day of my life and they can see it all over us it's like walking out of a smoldering house are you okay your house is burned oh no i'm good no nothing wrong with my house and i don't know why but friends as Church people are the best at this. We've got our PhD in this. To suffer and to fake it. Like everything's okay. That is not what God's word tells us to do. That word rejoice simply means this. Praise God. See, praising God is not putting a fake smile on. Praising God means you can suffer and you can tell people you're suffering, and your face can show that you're suffering. But in the midst of your suffering, you say, but I will still praise God. Because He is the author and perfecter of my faith. And if He has chosen it to be fit in my life that I might suffer in this way now, to Him be the glory. I don't understand it, and I don't like it, and I don't want it. But I will still praise Him. That's what it means to rejoice in our suffering. And notice what Paul says about that. God then uses that in such a way to grow us in our faith. Our suffering produces endurance. That means that we're able to make it through future sufferings better because we rejoice in this one. And then that endurance produces character. That word means genuineness. There's an authenticity to our faith. 
that the most authentic believers you and I will encounter are likely the ones who have suffered greatly. And they don't, they're real about it and they're honest about it. But in the midst of it, God does something through that to develop them, to grow them, to mature them. And ultimately, all of us, so that why? So that we might have hope. And that hope, he says, doesn't put us to shame. Again, there's that world out there that looks in and says, well, that just doesn't make sense. God loves you and you're suffering and they mock it and they laugh at it. And what does God's word say? There's nothing to be ashamed of. Our hope is not something to be mocked. It's not something to put us to shame. No, our hope is rooted in God's love that's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He's given us. If you've been with us in our study of Acts, you've seen God pour His Spirit out on His church in the book of Acts. That very same Spirit He poured out on them then, He pours into us today. And that is where our hope rests. Not in our ability to put on a fake smile, but our ability to suffer well and ultimately to hope in Christ. And so what I would ask of you and of myself this Lord's Day as we make resolutions is that we resolve to grow in our knowledge of this gospel and the knowledge of God's grace. And friends, that today, not tomorrow, we prepare to suffer well. See, a lot of us today, we're not suffering But 2015 will be a year when we do. It will be a year when some of us go through a job crisis, a job loss. It'll be a year when some of us go through a a crisis in our family or a crisis in a relationship. It might be the year when we lose someone we love. The, The reality is that this time next year, some of you may not be here because we may lose you. And the time to get ready for that is now. The time to prepare for suffering is now. Not to wait for it to come and then get serious about our faith. It just never quite works out that way. The the same house that Sandy and I lived in with the foundation wall crack issue (laughs) had these two massive trees out front. Now, I didn't know much about trees then. I don't know a whole lot about them now, but I know one thing. I know when storms come, big Bradford pears go down. Because that's what those two huge trees were. I remember when we bought the house going, man, look at those two nice trees. Storm comes, first one goes down. Next year, second one goes down. And as massive as those trees were, and as thick as those leaves were, I could put my arm around the, the, the root bed of that thing. Because if you know Bradford pears, you know their roots, they're shallow. They don't go very deep. We also had an oak tree. And I'm pretty sure somebody could drop a nuclear bomb on that house and that oak tree still be standing. Because its roots were deep and healthy. Here's the point. Trees don't grow roots in the storm. The storm reveals that they've got deep roots to begin with. The same is true in your life and in my life. That there are storms that will come for each of us. That's not the time to go, you know, I need to grow some roots today. The time to become rooted in the Word of God and the knowledge of it is now. To prepare for whatever God may have in store. I pray that next year is a year when none of us suffer. 
I don't look towards suffering as a good thing. I don't long for it. And yet I know this. As long as this church is a church that follows Jesus Christ, He will bring suffering to us and He will allow it and He will use it for His glory. And the time to prepare for that is now. And so I'm going to pray for us and I would ask that you pray as well and that during this time you just simply consider as we come to this point of the year when we make resolutions to make some resolutions based on God's Word to resolve to grow in your knowledge of the Gospel and the grace of God and to be ready for whenever suffering might come that you might glorify Christ. If you would pray with me. Father God, we do come to you in the name of Jesus and Lord, we just pray and ask that Lord, that you, you grow some deep roots in our life. Lord, I don't know when the storms are coming for me or for anybody else here. Maybe it seems like the skies are really sunny right now. <laughs> there might be some folks in here who think, I, I don't need to worry about any of that. I'm good. I'm happy. Life's great. Lord, help us to get ready and help us to be prepared. Not not be ready to put on a mask or a fake smile, but to be ready to simply rejoice in you because no matter what storm comes in this life, for those in Christ Jesus, nothing will separate us from your love and your grace and your goodness. And whatever pain, whatever suffering may come, you promise in your word, it is but for a moment because we will spend eternity in a new heaven and a new earth with you. And if among many other things, Lord, you use suffering to, to focus our hope on that world, not this one. Father, I pray for any who's yet to bend their knee to the cross, who's yet to repent and confess Christ as Savior. If they're here this morning, Lord, that they might. I pray for any that you might be leading to join our church fellowship, that they will. But Lord, I just pray for all of us. That, that we would resolve to walk faithfully with you. And Lord, that you might put faces and names on our hearts of people who don't know you, who've yet to respond to the gospel. And Lord, that you would burden us to pray even now for them, that they too might know the goodness and the grace that you offer. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.